This morning, our passage that we're going to be looking at is Psalm 16. I can't give it a title. I called it My Protector. This is a beautiful chapter, a wonderful chapter in God's Word in the Old Testament. And it's a chapter that's had particularly a real significance to me over the years. And I think you'll see it as we go on through the passage. But the passage is Psalm 16. I invite you to turn in your Bible if you have it. But we're going to just go looking through this. It's a relatively short one, like some of these are. This first one, it tells us it's a miktam. And when miktam is very rare in the, New, in the Old Testament. In fact, we don't even really know what it means. But it says it's of David. We don't know that means it was written by David or of David or about David. But it was something related to David. And the very first word says, keep me safe. If you put that and go to the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word shemar there, safe, has this idea to protect, to care for, to watch over is kind of the theme that's there. And the very first word is about this idea about protection, about care. The reality is we live in a very dangerous world. I don't have to tell you that to make that something new for you. There's an old thing in, in, coming, from the time of, in, coming from Ireland that talks about, you know, may you live in interesting times. Well, I've had about enough of living in these kind of interesting times because it's kind of crazy. Not sure what sexuality you are. We're not sure who's doing this, who's what. Our world is changing significantly. And yet here this passage, I think it's a good passage for what we're experiencing now in terms of seeing what God has done for us and what he's doing. So the very first thing is, keep me safe, O God, for in you. I take refuge. Again, that idea of safety. Now, it doesn't sound like this person, whoever this person is, who wrote this passage, we don't know. Whoever it was, it doesn't seem like they're in some immediate danger. It's not saying, you know, the lions are going to eat me up in 15 minutes if you don't get me. You know, it's not like that kind of thing. But it's almost like a confession in a sense. Keep me safe, O oh God, for I take refuge. In you I take refuge. We know that King David for sure had to go many times when he was being chased by King Saul. And that he had many times he had to hide out in these places. Well, he's probably not, David's not probably in this story, not in this thing going on. But notice he says, for in you I take refuge. This is where I find life. This is where I find security. In a world where there seems to be very little security, the psalmist is saying, yes, that is. That word shamar, safe, keep, protect. All of that goes together at the very first word. It gives us the idea of here's what's coming in the rest of the nine passages that we're going to be working through. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he adds this phrase, verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. What a great phrase. Think of all the things we do have. How many things we, you know, we have as believers? How many things we have by living in this country? The privilege of being in this country to do these things that we have that are so wonderful, that we're grateful for. He's saying, you know what? But all said, he said, you're my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Compared to everything else, there's nothing that compares to knowing you, to have a relationship with you, to be able to, be, to serve the Lord. And so in verse 2, his point is that you are my Lord. Apart from me, I have no good thing. And he goes on in the ver third verse. He says, as for the saints who are in the land, they're the glorious ones in whom all is my delight. Now look at that first part again. As far the, as far the saints who are in the land. Let's stop for a minute. 
Many of you remember the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there's that famous passage in chapter 6 where he has this vision, experience from the Lord, and he says, who will send me out to go? Send me, that whole thing. But that's where you have that beautiful little section where the Lord touches his tongue and it goes, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, that's kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And the word that's used here, if it says saints, is, means just as kadoshim. It's like the plural of it, saying these are the holy ones. As for the holy ones who are in the land, they're the glorious ones in whom all is my delight. It's like the psalmist saying, I'm so grateful that there are people like this who love God, who serve God, who are willing to do what God has called them to do. As for the saints who are in the land, they're the glorious one in whom is all my delight. And then he gets a little bit different angle here. Because here's he saying what he has. Now he's going to say what he's not going to do. He says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who will increase who run after other gods. He said, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Now remember, the people during the time this was written were assuming this in the Old, time, the Old Testament times, that they were surrounded by many different cultures. Babylonians, you know, you've got particularly, you've got the, all the Baal worship that was all in their area. All kinds of gods. And here he's saying, the sorrows of those will increase who run after gods. Now remember, when we go back and we think about the new, when God gave Moses the law, what was the number one thing? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And so he's saying like this, it's like very clear. He said, all these other peoples around us, Moabites, Canaanites, all of them, all the Ites people, they all have their gods. And he's saying, but for us, there's only one God. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. He's saying, I'm not going to do that. I am totally committed to the God, to Yahweh, to the God, our one who we worship. And so he says, and I'm not going to pour out their libations of blood or take up the names of my lips. Now that section there is interesting. He said, I will not pour out their libations. It's very common in that time that they would take blood from the ox maybe and pour it in a big thing. And they would go over and they'd pour it on people or pour it on important, important people. It's kind of bloody. It's kind of bad. And he's saying, I'm not having anything to do with that. And we've got to stop for a, for a moment and think about it. Because you have something like that, but to a lesser amount when you look at the Old Testament. There were times when a little bit of blood would be put on, like the horns of a, of a creature. Or be for like a person who's being anointed. But for the most part, that was not a big thing of what they did. So he says, I will not pour out their libations of blood. I'm not going to take up their names on my lips. In other words, it was very common that time. With, oh, Yahweh, or, oh, Baal, oh, such and such. He goes, that's not for me. There's only one name that I'm going to worship, and that's the name of God. That's Yahweh. That's the God that we worship. And so what you see as you go in verse 5 is that now he takes it into a different tack a little bit. And he gets very personal. He said, Lord, you're my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. Now look at that again. Lord, you are my portion. Now again, to understand that passage well is to go again back to the Old Testament. Because we know the fact when Moses died and Joshua took over, then he was put in charge. And his task was, okay, you see all these countries around here? I'm going to help you. You're going to have to do the fighting, but I'm going to help you, and we're going to take out all these people that are around here. And he says, I'm going to do that for you. 
if you'll stay faithful to me. But he basically tells them, Lord, you're my portion. When he's saying this, he's saying, going back to the Old Testament. Because now Moses was gone, and Joshua had not only had all these issues to deal with fighting, but he also had to deal with who's going to get the property. That was a huge issue. And so they had different things by doing lots and who got it. But somebody would get this lot, and another person said, well, I want to trade it with my friend because it got water. And then people said, well, that's not fair. How come his place is two times as big as mine? And so you've got Joshua going, oy vey, am I going to do this the rest of my life? Because, you know, this is important. They're, most of these people were farmers. And for them, this was critically important for them. And so Joshua had a large thing to deal with here. But what he's doing in verse 5 is very important because now he's moving from the actual things on the ground, the ground, the dirt, the land that they were taking. He's saying, you know, Lord, all these other things, you're my portion. He's metaphorically using that in the idea of saying, you know what really matters to me is the fact that I have you. There's nothing more important than that. There's nothing more wonderful than that. He said, Lord, you're my portion. It's not like he owns God, but he's saying, you're that which I want to believe and to understand. And you're my cup of blessing. We know that in the Old Testament a lot of anointing with oil, anointing with wine. He said, you are my cup of blessing. And then he says, I love this phrase, you hold my future. That's true of every single one of us who's a believer here today. And I hope you can say too, you know what, you hold my future. Here we're talking back in the way Old Testament times. And he's saying, you hold my future. And he's calling us now at the same time to say, Lord, you certainly are my future. For our young people, or some of them are college, some that are coming out of college here in the next couple of weeks, for them, the whole question is, what's my future? What am I going to do? How am I going to serve the Lord? He says, Lord, you hold my future. In other words, I can trust in you. You're not going to put me in a wrong direction. You're not going to hurt me into something, something, doing something crazy. Lord, you're my portion. You're all that I've got. You're my cup of blessing. You hold my future. And you can see how the psalmist is building on this. And this next verse is a very important one. Verse 6 is my favorite Old Testament verse. Now, a lot of people have favorite verses. Many people said, do you have a favorite verse? What's the one verse you can probably guess is probably the most popular? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. A great song. That's one of the, in the New Testament, one of the most favorites. What, Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's another great one. People say, that's my key verse. That's the verse I hang on. For me, this is my favorite one. And for good reason. For example, Psalm 16.6, this is our passage. Here's what it says. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. This verse over years, over good years, over challenging years, after sorrow, sorrowful times, this passage has been helpful to me. The boundary lines have fallen for me. Again, we're moving from the Old Testament era where it was not so much about this is my portion of the country. You can tell because these rocks are my rocks and this is the land that I have. Again, he's using this more in a spiritual sense, a metaphorical sense, saying, you know what? The boundary lines, spiritually speaking, 
You know what? They've fallen all around me. God has been faithful to me. For me, it's pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You know, I thought about this, particularly when I was working on this message this week and stuff, and I thought that passage fits so well with our family. I think about a couple generations left. My great-grandparents, they left Sweden, another from Norway. Things were bad. They were in America also at the same time, but things were really bad, and they, they left. They'd, you know, families had been there for generations, and they couldn't survive, and so they came to, they came to America. And they were starting, most of them could not speak English. My, great, my grandfather never got English. It was just too hard a language. He would say, Viska teacher, everybody, we'd say, no, 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 grandpa, we're going to teach you English now. Yeah, that's what I said, we're going to go to Senskanu. No, dad, don't talk, okay, what the people are around. My mother used to sink down below the thing so no one would see that she was with them. They, because she was so, she was so, he slaughtered the English language. But he was a great man who loved the Lord. And that makes all the difference. He's a man who loved the Lord and a woman who loved the Lord. And they, they were poor as dirt. All four of them, you've only heard me say this, but all four of them came to faith in Christ when they came to America through the Salvation Army. Today, we don't often think of the Salvation Army as that which is maybe bringing people to Christ, but they are. In fact, for a while, it seemed like they were going to just be like the Red Cross, you know, helping people, which is certainly good. But they are now being more open of saying, we are a church. We have church services. And particularly where they have people that are there that are there for alcoholism and things like that, that's a big thing for them. So again, going back, the boundary lines have fallen for me. I look at my grandparents and I look at them and the fact that they were faithful to the Lord. I look to my parents. They were great people. They were, you know, they're human too. They made mistakes. They failed at times. But they had a great commitment to the Lord and to their church. And that was a huge thing for me because the church we were in, I thought nobody ought to go to that church. I wouldn't have gone to it. But my parents were faithful to it. Many of you heard the story of what happened. At one point, the church almost closed because they didn't have money. So my father took out a large loan over years to pay for it. Now, let's be honest. How many of you would do that for us, for this church or that church, whatever church you know, whatever church you're associated with? The irony was I didn't know my parents were doing that because when my father was getting old and we were – think he was, might be losing him soon. I said, Dad, can we go over the finances again? And I said, Dad, this is impossible. This is showing you've still got some things you've got to pay off of this big bill. I said, I know. I said, what did you buy that was this expensive? I said, no, the church was almost going to close, so Mom and I thought we need to give a big portion of what we had to the church. This was not a great church. The fact that they were willing to stay in a church that was not that great, where the pastor ended up having an affair with their, I'll stop right there, that he, that he would do that was a huge impact on me, saying, you know what, I'm a Christian. This is not a great church, but this is a church in great need, and it's going to cost us something, and I'll be part of that. That had an impact on me as a young man. I wouldn't do that for that church. I could, I guess but I didn't. The boundary lines have fallen for me. I have great parents. Okay? I have a great wife. 
I have great children. I've got a great church called Grace Redeemer Community Church. It doesn't get a lot better than that. And I'm thankful for it. And so the psalmist says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's my story. For me in pleasant places, surely I have a delightful inheritance. And I hope my children will one day that they'll be able to say the same thing for about us, that Kathy and I would be able to say, you know, they weren't perfect parents, but they love the Lord. If we find out years from now that our kids are following the Lord, wouldn't that go well with this passage? To know that your children are walking with the Lord? For that, we long for as parents, and we hope for that. Notice, if you would, this verse real quick. Verse 7, he said, I will, the psalmist says, I'm going to praise the Lord who counseled me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. It's an interesting phrase. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. It's interesting some of the phrases here. He's going to, how, what is God going to do? He's going to counsel you. He's going to be with you. Now, it's interesting, and this may sound, seem a little weird, but if time for, time, once in a while I have people say, you know, I just kind of hear, want to hear the Bible, what it says directly from the Hebrew and the Greek. And people say, no, you really don't want to hear it in the Hebrew. Oh, yes, I do. I say, okay. I'll go give you this one right here. This is not, verse number seven. I will praise the Lord who counsels me, even at night my heart instructs me. Okay, so I'll do this in Hebrew and tell you what it literally says, that phrase. It says this, even at night my heart, let me stop right there. Right, This says, my heart instructs me, literally is, my kidneys instruct me. May the Lord's word be given to each of us here. In the ancient world, they had an idea of believing that these people, your portions of your body parts were important. And they had sometimes like emotions. So I could say to Kathy, honey, I love you with all my liver. <laughs> to a person in the ancient world, that was not weird. That was not weird. Do you remember how you know the pharaohs and stuff, what they would do? They would take body parts and they have them special things and special sarcophagus because those parts might be important. They may be portents that were going to be used. And so things like love, you know, we laugh. You know, I say, uh, even at my night, my heart instructs me. You could say, the heart, it's only a beating thing. Thump, 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 thump. Okay? Saying, yeah. But to them, each major part, you know, all of my kidneys, I love you, honey. That's really what get a guy, get a girl, you know, if you're looking for somebody. But it's a point here. Even at night, my heart instructs me. So he counsels me. He says, even at night, my, he, my heart, God instructs me. And he says on verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, that's my commitment. I've set the Lord always before me. Why? Because he's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. The confidence of knowing in a world that's crazy, that seems to be coming apart, where there's great evil, it's saying, you have a great God. We have a great God that we can trust. And he calls us to be faithful, to hear what he has to tell us to say. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices, my body also will rest secure. I have that confidence, Lord, of what you have. Now verse 10, I'll do this very quick, but, but this is an issue, is this word Sheol. I remember I was in a seminary thing. We had this kind of like discussion of what does Sheol mean. One of the things it does mean certainly has this idea of the grave. Somebody went down. You hear that a lot in the Psalms. Don't let me go down into Sheol. 
Deliver me from Sheol. So it has that idea of a place of the dead or the place that are now waited to be the dead. That's one of the possible things. The other possibility, which I actually lean to, which is not a very happy one, is that it goes with what we see a lot in the Old Testament. And we have where it talks about what's going on here. It talks about that what Sheol is not just the place for like bad people. It's where everybody go. They're often called as the shades. And, you know, this is a very sad kind of thing, but it's basically saying you die. This is very much by the, like the Greeks, by the way. You cross the river Styx, and you go to a place where it's mostly darkness. There's no joy. There's no God. There's nothing. It's a very, very dark understanding of the, the Bible. But here's the important things. Maybe that is exactly what it is. I hope not. This is, again, early, early in the time of when we talk about the Bible, that maybe it had that kind of sense of this is just a place of you're alive, but you just ought to be dead because there's nothing. But what it does mean is you could look at this passage and you go on, look at what it says. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. You can see how easily... That is, people now started to see the fact that, you know what? There must be more than just Sheol as a place of people being just in darkness. And what they started seeing is the fact that God was continuing to work. We call that progressive revelation. God is progressively telling us more and more. He didn't tell us a whole lot in the early Old Testament. He's telling us more from the, uh, later in the Old Testament. And he's certainly telling us by the time of Christ, the saying, you know what? It ain't always going to be this way. We're changing this. Things are changing significantly. He says, you know what? For you will not abandon me, the writer says. You won't abandon me to Sheol. I'm not going to be there forever. God has a purpose for me. You will not allow, notice this phrase, your holy one to see decay. Do you see how the Christians immediately picked up on that passage? In the LXX, which is one of the ways that we bring in the Greek culture into it, is the idea of the fact that here the holy one has that meaning in the sense, like saying the holy one, that's Christ. You can see why early on the Christian church understood, you know how that holy one who died that one who was in Sheol, you know what? He died, but he ain't dead now. He's very alive, and he's coming again in power and glory. And he's prepared a place for us where we're going to be forever. And we've got a great Lord. I don't have to worry about going to Sheol. That's behind us. But I know by God's grace, not because I'm good, because I'm not, but because of God's mercy, I'm going to be with him forever because he keeps his promises. And one day, we'll be together forever. Lord, we thank you for this passage, a beautiful passage that describes from the Old Testament of a passage of how you work in our lives and how you continue to work with us, to teach us, to enable us to be the women and the men, the boys and girls that you want us to be. Please help us as we continue on in our worship that it would be honoring to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.